I'd like to ask you to please open with me to our text for this morning, which is John chapter 6, verses 16, and we're actually just going to read to verse 21. So John 6, verses 16 to 21. And you may have noticed my voice sounds a little different. That's because after a year of not being sick, because we didn't go anywhere or do anything, I was sick for the last couple of days and almost lost my voice last night, so we'll see how this goes. If it doesn't go well, we'll just end a little early. So, John chapter 6, verses, uh, we'll start at verse 16. We're looking at the seven signs that the Apostle John writes about in his gospel. <clears throat> and this is what he writes. When evening came, this is the evening right after Jesus had fed the 5,000, his disciples went down to, the, down to the lake where they got onto a boat and set off across uh, the lake to Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, every once in a while, a sports team will sign the son or daughter of some former um, athlete, some former star, just to see if they have a bit of their parents' talent. Uh, For instance, a few years ago, Jerry Rice Jr., who is the son of Hall of Fame NFL wide receiver Jerry Rice Sr., was signed as an undrafted free agent to play wide receiver for the Washington football team. Uh, Unfortunately, both for him and for Washington, though, his career never really panned out. Uh, He lasted all of one month before he got injured in practice. Washington waived him two days later, and though he made a few more attempts to keep his career going, nothing really ever came of it. And yet the hope is always there. Maybe this kid has a bit of the magic. Maybe they've got some of the talent that made mom or dad so productive. That's the reason why teams do that, why they sign the children of of former stars. Because they're hoping that mom or dad's talent might be there, under the surface, just waiting to be released. Maybe she can play like her dad. Maybe he's got a bit of his mother in him. Maybe they can do the things that their parents could. Well, in this text we actually see Jesus do that. He is like his father. He does have the same abilities. He is able to do the same things that his father could. And he proves all of that here in this passage by, of all things, walking on water. It's another one of these signs that the Apostle John records that we've been looking at in this gospel. And he records those signs in order to show us, as his readers, who Jesus is to reveal to us a bit of his true identity and to make clear that he's the son of God. And in order to understand all of that and why John believes that this sign should help us see Jesus that way, help us see him as the son of God, what we actually need to do is is sort of start by taking a step back this morning, going back to the Old Testament and looking at how water is actually portrayed in Scripture in order to see how Jesus' mastery of it here tells us something about who he is. 
Um, you see, in the ancient world, many, uh, many peoples and cultures viewed water as a symbol of chaos, destruction, and disorder. Um, put simply, ancient people uh, saw water as uncontrollable, powerful, and potentially deadly. And whatever they were dealing with, whether it was streams or rivers or lakes or, or the ocean, ancient people understood, as we still do, I think, to some extent today, that water could rather suddenly and unpredictably become one of the most dangerous forces in the world. Uh, and that included the Jewish people, too. In his commentary on this passage, biblical theologian writes this. He says, the Jewish people were not keen on the sea. They were not much of a seafaring race, unlike the ancient Phoenicians to the north. In some of their ancient stories, the sea was associated with chaos, evil, untamable forces within the natural or the spiritual world. And true, they sang psalms which celebrated the fact that Yahweh, their God, was king over the mighty waters. For example, Psalm 93. But even the fishermen, used to the squalls on the Sea of Galilee, could find themselves not only in trouble, but in fear for their lives, as the sea would suddenly become rough and chaos threatened to come in again. And we see that same skepticism and fear and distrust of water expressed in scripture too. For instance, just think about some of the instances where the Bible talks about water. In fact, think of the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1, verse 2. It says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the original Hebrew, the words for formless and empty there are tohu vabohu, which literally mean empty to the point that they even lack order, void of structure or organization, absent of form or shape. As most commentators translate them, they refer to utter chaos and, and orderlessness. And so in the beginning, the earth was formless and empty, chaotic and disordered, dark and devoid of structure. And yet what was there? Water. The text says darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In other words, right from the start, that is how the Bible portrays water. is as this symbol of, of absence and lack, chaos and emptiness, darkness and disruption. And if you think about some of the other stories in the Bible that deal with water, we see the same thing, right? The flood in Genesis six through eight is a story of destruction where God wipes out nearly all life on earth. In Exodus 14, the Red Sea stands as a barrier between the Israelites and the Egyptians who are pursuing them, keeping them from freedom. And then famously in the book of Jonah, the sea becomes deadly violent as soon as he steps on a boat headed for Tarshish. In other words, over and over in scripture, water figures as a force of danger, risk, and sometimes it's even portrayed as downright evil. And so as a result, the people in the Bible often treated water with skepticism, fear, and distrust. Sometimes, though, they also worshiped it. You see, because of their fear and distrust of it, many ancient peoples also deified water. They actually included it in their pantheon. They made it a god. Maybe if we worship the waters, they reasoned, and give them the honor, respect, and sacrifice they require, then they won't flare up. They won't attack us. They won't destroy us. Maybe instead they'll allow us safe passage. And so ancient peoples often came up with gods for the bodies of water near them. And then they would worship them 
to try and pacify those gods and bring them under some degree of control. And for the ancient Israelites' neighbors, the people who lived around the Israelites, the name of that water god was Yam. The surrounding Canaanite people who lived around the Israelites worshipped him as the god of the lakes, rivers, and sea. He wasn't quite up, as high up there on the, on the sort of uh, list of their gods as some of the other ones that we see mentioned in scripture, uh, Baal, for instance, but he was still considered a powerful deity in his own right by the Israelites' pagan neighbors. And so in summary, in the context of the Old Testament, water was considered chaotic, disordered, and dangerous, even to the point that it was deified, worshiped, and offered sacrifices as a god in order to keep it calm, safe, and under some degree of control. And, and the Bible portrays water in the same sort of way, with one key difference. Because even though that's how the Bible, like the other cultures and peoples around it, treated water, portrayed it that way, the Bible also makes clear repeatedly, over and over, that God is still Lord over it. For instance, just think about some of those passages that we mentioned earlier, right? In each one of them, God actually controls the waters. He rules over them, and he uses them for his purposes. For example, in the beginning in Genesis 1, God takes the chaotic, deep, dark waters of creation, and he separates them. He spreads them apart. He makes space so that there can be dry land, goodness, and blessing there. Then with the flood, a few chapters later, he uses it to destroy, yes, but he also uses it to cleanse, renew, and purify his creation. In the book of Exodus, both in chapter 2 with Moses floating down the Nile River and with the Red Sea in chapter 14, God uses the waters actually to bring about the redemption and liberation of his people, the Israelites. And then with Jonah... God uses the violent raging of the sea to bring about his plan to send his prophet to the pagan city of Nineveh on a missionary trip. In other words, even though water is presented as this source of chaos, destruction, and death in scripture, each time it's also depicted as under God's control and power, subject to him, and only able to go as far as he lets it. Despite their power and potential for disorder and evil, it turns out that the waters, like everything else in his creation, are no match for God. Over and over in the Bible, he controls the chaos, he tames the sea, and he proves that he is Lord over them no matter what. And so does Jesus. That's what we see in this text. That's what's really going on here. That's the sign that John wants us to understand. This episode on the Sea of Galilee takes place, like we said, immediately after the last sign that John tells us about, the feeding of the 5,000 in the first part of this chapter. We looked at that last week. And like we saw a week ago, that text ends with Jesus uh, actually trying, running away from the people who he had just fed because they had come and tried to make him king by force. And so Jesus hides from them. He slips up a mountain in order to be alone with his father. <clears throat> his disciples don't go with him, though. Instead, probably according to some prior instructions from Jesus, they head down to the lake and they get in a boat and take off for their next destination. They're making their way in a boat across, uh, across the Sea of Galilee to the town of Capernaum. It doesn't take long, though, uh, like happens often in Scripture, for the disciples to find themselves out of their depth, both literally and figuratively. 
The text says that it was dark on the lake, the middle of the night, in fact, and a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. And it's yet another instance in Scripture of the chaotic, untamable, threatening waters trying to take over and reassert their control. Suddenly, though, a figure appears. In the middle of the storm, he comes near the disciples' boat, walking on the waters, and the disciples are scared. They're terrified. And who wouldn't be? As one commentator points out, this scene is terrifying. People don't walk on water. And yet this one does. Three or four miles out from the shore, this mysterious figure walks across the lake, approaches the disciples' boat, straining against the storm, and comes near enough to be within earshot. And then he speaks. And it's not the voice of doom and gloom and terror, but instead of the one that these disciples have come to know and love. It's the voice of the one who called them and asked, him, asked them to follow him. It's the voice of the one they've come to trust and believe in. It's the voice of Jesus. And he says to them simply yet powerfully, it is I. Don't be afraid. That seemingly simple statement repeat, reveals two important things about Jesus here. First, in the original Greek, the phrase Jesus uses there when he says, it is I, is ego a me. And that's not a bad translation, it is I. That's one way that phrase can be translated. Um, there's another way that it can be translated, though, too, maybe a more literal way, and that's I am. That should make our ears perk up. That's because this isn't the first time in Scripture that we hear that phrase, I am. Instead, if we're familiar with Scripture, specifically the Old Testament, then we've heard that phrase before, haven't we? After all, that's how God chooses to identify himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. In fact, we looked at that passage a couple months ago when we were doing a sermon series on the book of Exodus. And in that chapter, Moses comes face to face with God, and in order to understand who he's dealing with, he asks for God's name, and that's how God responds. He says, I am who I am. In Hebrew, the word for that phrase is Yahweh, but in Greek, that phrase would have been translated the same way that Jesus speaks it here, ego me. Just as God chooses reveal, to reveal himself to Moses in Exodus 3, that's how Jesus chooses to reveal himself to his disciples on the waters here in John chapter 6. In response to their fear and fright in the middle of the night of a storm on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus comes to them and says to them, I am. Do not be afraid. And folks, I'll be honest here. We don't always get this in our English translations when we read the Bible, but there is no way that the significance of that would have been lost on any first century religious Jew. Anyone from a Jewish background back then or even anyone with a familiarity of the Old Testament at the time would have understood what John is saying about Jesus here. By using that phrase, ego a me, I am, Jesus is in essence making the claim that he is no ordinary person. He's no mere human being. He's no normal prophet or teacher. Instead, he is the same I am as the one who revealed himself to Moses in Exodus. That's part of the sign here. 
That's part of how Jesus reveals himself in this passage. That's part of how we catch a glimpse of who he really is in this text. His words tell us. But if his words aren't enough, then Jesus' actions back it up too. That's the second thing that this passage reveals to us about Jesus. You see, this text clearly shows Jesus' mastery over the waters. They're no match for him. The disciples are three to four miles out from the shore in the middle of a storm that's threatening their lives. And what does Jesus do? He walks out to them. He treads across the waters. He marches across the lake just as if it was dry ground. The other gospel writers actually go a step further here. John doesn't include this in his, in his version, but Matthew and Mark both make it clear in their accounts of this same episode that Jesus not only has the power to walk on the waters, but also to calm them. Be still, he says, and the waters listen. They obey his word. The point here is clear. Just like his father throughout scripture, Jesus has the power to tame the chaos, the disorder, and the destruction of the waters. He's in control over them, and they are subject to his authority. He's Lord, and just like his father before him, the waters too listen to him. And when you think about that, there's incredible comfort in that. Jesus' disciples find their fears and uncertainties answered in Christ here, and at least part of the point of this passage is that we can too. Again, as N.T. Wright puts it, the story of Jesus walking on the waters can easily be used as a theme for meditation. There are many times in our lives, and we never know when they will strike, when metaphorically speaking, suddenly the wind gets up and the sea becomes rough. As we struggle to make our way through, sometimes we are aware of a presence with us, which may initially be more disturbing than comforting. But if we listen through the roar of the waves and the wind, we may hear the voice that says, it's me, don't be afraid. And if we are ready then to take Jesus on board, we may find ourselves sooner than we expected at the harbor where we will be calm and secure once more. And that brings us to the gospel this morning. You see, there's another passage in the Bible that we haven't talked about that's significant for this theme of water in Scripture, and that's Revelation 21. In that chapter, the Apostle John is describing the new creation that God will one day bring about. And in the first, chapter, or first verse of that chapter, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. But then he continues, and he says something kind of strange. He says, and there was no longer any sea. No longer any sea. I'll be honest, that verse, that, that piece of that verse used to confuse me. I used to wonder, so is there not going to be any water in heaven? Is God's new creation just going to be land? Are we going to have to say goodbye to lakes and rivers and oceans and days at the beach and God's restored and renewed world? And the answer is no. I don't think so. I don't think that's what that text is trying to say. Instead, as I've come to understand Scripture better and, and this role that water plays in it, um, instead of literally saying that there won't be any water in the redeemed world that God is going to eventually bring about, what I think that text is actually saying is that instead there won't be any of the chaos 
the disorder, the destruction or death associated with water. That seems to be the point that John is making in Revelation 21. In fact, he even says it explicitly in verse four of that passage when he writes, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And I think that John is trying to make the same point here in chapter six of his gospel with the sign of Jesus walking on the water. Put simply, what John is telling us is that through Jesus Christ, a day is coming when all of that stuff, death, mourning, crying, pain, chaos, disorder, destruction, it'll all be done away with. That's what this sign is pointing us to. When water turns to wine, when the dying are given new life, when the invalid are made strong, when the hungry are fed, and when the Son of God walks on the waters, it points us to the coming new creation, to a time when God will once again tame the deep just like he did in the beginning, and to the day when he will finally and fully bring order to the brokenness, peace to his world, and once and for all defeat sin, death, destruction, and despair. That is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the one who rules over and walks over the waters, is himself the great I am, and who has saved us from our sins. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you are Lord. Lord over every piece of your creation, even the chaotic, untamable parts that threaten to destroy us. Lord, they are still in your hand. And we see that clearly in this text. They are also in the hand of your Son, our Lord and Savior, who has rescued us from that chaos, from our sin, and from death. Thank you for sending us a Savior, Lord. And it's in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.